Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's available in print as both an individual ebook and as part of a five conversation collection in ebook and paperback. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. The common perception of a philosopher is that of a highly theoretical head in the clouds type who ponders deep, abstract issues that are of no direct relevance to our everyday lives. Even the expression merely philosophical has clear implications of a point which could or perhaps even should be technically included for completeness, but is certainly not anything that anyone with a busy day job would reasonably spend her time occupied by. But a quick glance at Honora O'Neill will put paid to this notion of an out-of-touch philosopher safely walled up from the real world to indulge in abstruse ivory tower speculations. An internationally renowned ethicist and long-standing professor of philosophy at the University of Cambridge, it's hard to imagine someone with more impeccable academic credentials. And yet it's equally hard to imagine someone who's had a more consistently vigorous impact in the public sphere, chairing, among other things, the Nuffield Council on Bioethics, the Human Genetics Advisory Commission, the Equality and Human Rights Commission, and numerous other public policy initiatives. Perhaps then the term merely philosophical means something quite different from what we thought it did. Was that you had um, enrolled as an undergraduate in history and French, I believe, and then there was a note from... History really is just one had to do French and Latin if one wanted to do history. Oh, so it was, it was primarily history. Yeah. And, and at some point, um, your philosophical hunger came to the attention of Elizabeth Anscombe and she wrote a note and... Well, uh, I mean, I said I thought I might want to do philosophy and psychology. Frankly, I thought psychology would be the interesting one at that moment. I, mean, I was 18 and one has illusions. But um, uh, so I was sent um, to Elizabeth Anscombe to be interviewed for suitability. And I'm told, this is, this is only a report, that she wrote, this girl is hungry for philosophy, which uh, slightly surprised me as my intention had been psychology. <laughs> when, when were you told this, by the way? When did you learn of, of the contents of the novel? I was told this by uh, the history tutor, whom I let down by departing from history. And uh, she said, well, I'll tell you now why I was so cross when you decided to do this. It was because I thought you could get a first in history. And I said, no, 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 my mind's of a completely the wrong sort for that, which I think showed I had a rather immature view of what uh, serious work in history is, because mm. I thought uh, that it was very, what should we say, fact-laden, and I didn't have the right sort of retentive memory like some of my historian friends. I see. And when you were younger, uh, I also read somewhere that um, that you you had some interest in Lewis Carroll and mathematics and a little bit of this sort of thing. But I, I, I suppose my 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 question is, why didn't you think of going into philosophy or reading philosophy straight off? 
it's very hard to work that out, but I uh, suspect my father was influential. He had um, ended up taking a degree in English, having started in history and then done PPE for a bit and uh, decided it was too abstract. Well, I don't mind abstraction, but I see why people find the most popular philosophy degree in this country, which, as you know, is philosophy, politics, economics, um, has got a mixed reputation because so many people uh, who have taken it uh, have perhaps gone a political route that other people find meretricious, shallow, and so on. Although, for everyone I can think of who, of whom that could be said, there are probably several I could think of who've become serious practitioners of one or another of these subjects. Mm. So I think uh, it was, you know, like most people at school, I didn't know what philosophy was. I'd never heard of it. I didn't know what psychology was either. I read a little bit of Freud. I didn't find it that gripping. What about, what about mathematics and, and, and physics and that sort of thing? Because you seem like you have a, an exceptionally logical and analytical mind. I mean, one would have thought that that might have appealed to you as well. Well, my, uh, the reason why I um, read Lewis Carroll, I was only about 13 at the time, but I don't know whether you know his... He, he has these sort of exercises in syllogistic, mm. and they're quite fun. Um, and uh, I just used to look at them, as you might when you're 12 or 13, trying to see how the argument worked. But that's the first time I remember thinking about arguments and their structure. And not even having a vocabulary. I might have known the word premise and conclusion, but hardly anything else. Mm. Uh, mathematics, I was uh, uh, competent and not talented. And perhaps the the play involved in mathematics and the structure wasn't communicated to you, but often isn't when one is in high school. Uh, it, it, it's true of a lot of subjects. Mm. Yeah, it just was, um, you know, just something one had to do, and um, in some ways, uh, just not my favourite subject. So um, I, I was lucky enough to do a lot of skilled subjects. So I, I did, did maths and further maths and a lot of languages, but I, I preferred history. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about your personal background and public policy. Um, hopefully we'll, we'll mm. have a chance to talk about this uh, later on, your extensive work in, in, mm. in the public arena. But I imagine, without pretending to know, that there were some aspects of the merits of becoming involved in public policy that were impressed upon you from a young age in your family background. Is that the case? Yes, my family were quite a political family and uh, uh, heavily committed to public service. So when you were younger, if, if you could remember, was this something that you were imagining you might become involved in in some way or another? Or, no, or not so I, much? I had a total blank on what my own future would be. You must remember that I'm 75 and most women of my generation did not have careers and uh, did not envisage it. And uh, so I, I didn't think about that. I had no vision of the future as a child. Mm. You mentioned a moment ago that the program to which you transferred in philosophy and psychology 
and physiology. And physiology, right? What is it with P's in this country? P, P, P. Yep. <laughs> to use. Um, that you thought originally that you might be more motivated towards psychological uh, interests or orientation. Well, uh, that I might find this, this academic subject of psychology in, more interesting than philosophy. Um, the, um, the Department of Psychology in Oxford at that time was a department of experimental psychology. So, <coughs> um, quite a lot fell outside its remit, and, and that's why um, one was expected to do, even if one was not doing physiology as a major subject, to do it as a minor subject. So I did armchair physiology, or rather library physiology, brain structures. Mm. And, um, uh, but it was, a, it, you know, I knock it a bit, but it was actually a, a versatile, useful preparation. I did some statistics, I did uh, read endless, endless experiments, a lot of learning theory, a lot of um, uh, psychophysics, as it was then called. Um, it, what is that exactly? It was the study of the, um, I suppose, the formal aspects of perceptual modalities of hearing, of seeing, of so on. So uh, it was Helmholtz, wasn't it, 19th century, who Helmholtz invented the phrase. Yes. And I think that's what it was. Uh, but I just, I found psychology, perhaps apart from a little bit of the work on uh, communication on the whole, uh, yes, they are interesting experiments, sometimes they're very interesting articles, but I didn't find that as a subject uh, it grabbed me particularly. Mm. In which I was rather disappointed. I hoped it might be much more interesting. Have you, I'd like to get back to this a, a little bit at the end if we have time. Have you been following developments in psychology? Because, of course, the field has changed enormously. It, it's changed multiply, hasn't and, it? And, and you've been involved. To, again, we're going to hopefully get to the aspects of the natural I have, uh, I mean, it, I've rather steered clear of academic psychology because I have, uh, although I do realize that they have shed their extreme forms of behaviorism, which were... Um, uh, de rigueur when I was an undergraduate, I just haven't found it sympathetic. But I do know quite a number of psychologists, sometimes talk with them. I find the um, study of the nervous system and the brain that has developed more interesting than other things. And of course, perhaps wouldn't find that interesting if I hadn't had that background. And so, uh, again, I don't want to dwell on this, but so much has happened in terms of neuroscience, being yeah, able to, exactly. to exactly. have a clear yeah, It's a completely different world in that respect, Indeed. isn't it? Yeah. So as we move uh, towards your, your doctorate years, we've mm. telescoped things a little bit. Mm. Um, I, I had a few questions uh, about your trajectory, so help me here a little bit. My understanding is that you began being motivated by uh, 
are captivated, is motivated. You see, I keep now, now you've made me terribly self conscious. <laughs> Sorry, I made you self conscious about that word, haven't I? I will never use it again. Um, my understanding is that you were captivated by aspects of rational choice theory um, and then started to recognize limitations and move towards other approaches for understanding frameworks of action or frameworks of um, behavior. Um, so I have a, a, so first of all, jump in if I'm saying anything no, that's, that's inappropriate. More, that's more or less correct. Uh, I, I won't say I was captivated by models of rational choice, uh, but they were extremely fashionable. And when one's whatever I was, 21, 22, you, uh, are rather drawn to things that you think are the coming thing and so I thought uh, this must be important and um, uh, as as described in the little thing I've given you I uh, took a seminar from Robert Nozick who uh, had us read Luce and Rafer's book Games and Decisions so I read a lot of decision theory and game theory and uh, uh, got quite into it, and then I thought, no, this, this really is implausible stuff. And there are all sorts of reasons why it, um, I can imagine it's implausible, but what, what were your particular, uh, what was your orientation? I didn't feel that it uh, gave one any insight into good reasons for doing anything. To say, I prefer or I like X is not a very good reason for doing X. I mean, it might be a good reason in certain circumstances with lots of other stuff put in there. But uh, the idea that preferences and desires have either normative or explanatory force seems to me um, a bit over the top, although they're widely taken to have that uh, sort of force and weight. And I believe it may be because there's a sort of ambiguity in the way they are understood. So that you've got people, I suppose, uh, it comes very much out of the economist's direction. You've got people who are, um, uh, on the one hand, think that uh, desires or preferences have explanatory force for what people do. And on the other hand, uh, take what's called a revealed preference view of uh, desires and infer them from what is done. And I felt that this had a certain circular quality to mm. it, and I still feel that. So, uh, and I fear that's infected quite a lot of our ordinary language and ordinary discussion. So you, you hear people uh, sort of, as they think, hope, explaining something by reference to some supposed desire or preference that a person has, and then in the next breath you hear them uh, citing what those, the person does as evidence that they have that desire or preference. I'm sure you've met it. In, in, in addition, um, at least from my perspective, there are two other obvious limitations to that view. Uh, one is, it seems to me, that um, there's an assumption that one can evaluate one's preferences, one can evaluate the circumstance from an economics perspective. There's, uh, as you alluded to, this notion that used to be very popular of uh, 
these rational agents who went around maximizing their utility functions, and the implication being that people could, at any given moment, be able to say, this, my preferences are 6 out of 10 in this particular direction, and 7 out of 10 in that direction, and so forth. And there's a certain naivete in, in the notion that people are actually able to do such a thing. Um, and then, of course, uh, there's, the, there's the question of... Um, how it is that um, all evidence seems to be pointing to the fact that people actually, by and large, do not act terribly rationally. Um, yes, I mean that. That, of course, is a, a bit of a hole below the waterline. So when you get um, what's now called behavioral economics coming along, um, it looks as though there's been some sort of empirical falsification of models of rational choice. Mm. Uh, I fear that the diehards would say, no, because I infer the preferences from what is done, my position is, aha, unfalsifiable. And you know, then it seems to me pointless to hold this position. But I didn't see all this when I was sure. in my early 20s. It was uh, simply a sense that um, the attempts to complicate and refine uh, let's call it the basic utilitarian model, weren't improvements. And you, you talked about how, as you started looking towards other approaches, and you first moved in a neo-Kantian direction before you started backing up and, and moving to Kant, that, that Kantian approaches, and we'll, we'll get to aspects of that, or at least I'll let you get to aspects of that, were not very fashionable at all. Um, not at, at all. At the time. Not at all. Um, uh, Anscombe has a very well-known article called Modern Moral Philosophy in which she says that, um, uh, without mincing her words, she never minced her words, uh, that uh, both Kant and John Stuart Mill um, have really nothing useful to say about ethics. And uh, she, after all, was my main teacher, and my other teacher, Philippa Foote, uh, she, I owe her one thing. Uh, she told me, um, you will read Kant's Grundlegung, this Easter vacation, and I did, and I read it very carefully. So I'm very grateful to her for that later, but uh, there was very little interest in Kant at the time. But I lay that at the door of the uh, continuing uh, impact of what one might think was dead, logical positivism. The arguments were shot through, if not in the 30s, certainly in the, by the mid-40s, but uh, the position was immensely influential in the English-speaking world post-war. Mm. And I believe you had mentioned that one main critique that Elizabeth Anscombe made was that acts could be described in many different ways, and therefore um, one couldn't have any. Uh, the print, the, there, there was a sense yes. that, that there yes. was a sense of, of 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 mere formalism, that if one had a principle, um, one uh, it, it was somehow impossible to apply to acts which could be described in many different ways, um, because one could presumably at some level go off in many different directions. But that that that. Uh, that seemed to be that seemed to me rather to be the thrust of her critique. I Is that right? Well, the the 
critique of the criticism of empty formalism is very yes. much older. It goes back to Hegel, right. the idea that Kant's philosophy tells you nothing because you have these very nice principles, but what then? And that's been an absolutely recurrent uh, criticism of any ethical theory that emphasizes principles. Uh, Elizabeth, I think, had some uh, uh, more acute worries, and I've come to think they depended on a confusion on her part, which is you know, a terrible thing to say about one's teacher, but I'm going to say it, um, that uh, the if you're trying to describe a situation, uh, then you might think, well, this description would apply, or this one, or this one, or this one, that could be entirely true, and how do you choose between them? So the problem of the plurality of act descriptions is a real problem when you're seeking to uh, describe or, or to theorize action. But that's actually not what you're trying to do when you're thinking about practical reasoning or ethics or politics, because you're not trying to describe an existing situation, you're trying to enact a principle, and you start with the principle, and then you say, what would satisfy this principle? Which acts would satisfy this principle? And um, uh, that uh, work on judgment is one of the things I'm um, just brought to a completion now, because uh, it seems to me to have bedeviled a lot of work in ethics, not just Elizabeth, but many, many other people who, for example, we have an enormous field of academic endeavor, which is called applied ethics. Mm. And you might think, what's applied ethics? And the, the thought would be, well, you apply principles to particular cases. Uh, however, um, in when you're talking about practical matters and what to do, the particular case will only be there when you've acted. Mm. And so it's, it's a, an oddity that what is a problem about theoretical reasoning, and one that can't, by the way, address, uh, but um, is taken to be a defect in practical reasoning. Uh, and very many people have taken that line, including, and I suspect this is why it seemed particularly uh, potent to Elizabeth Anscombe, it, it, it's very much the view of the Wittgensteinians uh, who focus on the idea that um, Ethical judgment is about, they use these words, appraising or attending to or uh, uh, thinking about particular acts. Well, fine and good if the acts have already been and gone and got done. Mm. But if they haven't been and gone got done, you can't actually do that. This is your claim of... Hmm? This, this, is your, this, this seems to be your claim related to ethics is not a, a spectator sport. Correct. Um, Sorry, I just lost my train of thought for a moment. Um, but Anscombe, you know, I, in some ways, though, she was a great eccentric. I was very fond of Elizabeth Anscombe. She was undoubtedly a real heavyweight uh, in, uh, intellectually, and um, it took me a long time to summon up the courage to criticize one of her central moves. Hmm. It, it seems to me, and, and perhaps uh, I'm misconstruing this, but hmm? it seems to me this is also related to the idea that um, it's, it's inappropriate or perhaps uh, hopelessly naive to believe that we're going to have principles uh, which can be used for every conceivable 
action or every conceivable scenario, and there may be all sorts of ethical quandaries or difficulties going here or there, but that doesn't in any way imply that there aren't some signposts that we have along the way, and that there isn't some structure that we can invoke. Oh, I, I would have thought that that's absolutely right, and that we would not expect uh, 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 principles to yield, if we're thinking about practice, to yield algorithms, right. if we're thinking about judging what other people do, which is where, unfortunately, a lot of writing and ethics has ended up, uh, I don't really see why we should expect uh, to, uh, it to have something distinctive to say about every single case. Right. In contradistinction to what one strives for in physics, for example, when one has principles and one, one wants to say, um, these principles will yield, if properly understood and properly managed, uh, a solution in advance to every conceivable case. We're dealing with a completely different and an kettle of fish. View, yes. Uh, that would be right for, for physics, but it would be right for um, some much simpler domains of human activity. So you would, uh, you would expect there to be algorithms. Oh, an example I often use is um, winning noughts and crosses if you make the first move. Um, not if you don't, but... No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or, um, uh, yeah, I'm... But you see, really, for even for pretty straightforward everyday acts that you you can't think write down a set of rules that totally prescribe what people are to do uh, so my example I use there is um, postage stamps the post office tells you with some precision the value of stamps for a letter to a given destination of a given weight uh, but that doesn't tell you exactly which stamps or what, how to put them on the envelope or which order or and so on. Right. So actually algorithms are pretty unusual in everyday life. Um, although uh, it, it may seem to, there are some, but they tend to be for aspects of things rather than right. comprehensive. G getting back to the unfashionability of of Kantian ideas, mm. um, you point out that in addition to this criticism of empty formalism that Hegel and other mm. people have mm. pointed out or stressed, there was a parallel criticism, or at least an additional criticism, of rigorism. Yeah. Um, and as somebody who doesn't pretend to have any deep understanding of this field whatsoever, that just strikes me as bizarre. The it's idea, absolutely bizarre. The, you can't have both criticisms <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> so, so just to be to be explicit, the notion of rigorism is that uh, that the framework is is so strict um, that it doesn't take into account the the variety of experiences and circumstances and so forth, and that it will lead to this, the, the the formalism will lead to the same conclusions uh, independent of of circumstances, which can't conceivably be. Uh, be held simultaneously with the belief of empty formalism. I, I, I mean, you can't hold formalism and rigorism together. Though I'm not sure it's because, uh, I think it is simply because uh, formalism says principles tell you nothing at all. They don't tell you what to do because right. what you do will always be wholly particular. Um, and the principle uh, covers a multitude of possibilities. And rigorism says, on the contrary, principles just give you detailed algorithms. 
It can't, you can't have it both ways. But what's very interesting is why have these two criticisms repeatedly been coupled when yes. you can't have both of them? And I think that it's sort of um, on the basis of one, two, a knockout. Um, first, I'll accuse them of rigorism. And then if they say, no, 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 these principles are quite open and they allow for different realizations, I'll say, ah, formalism. <laughs> I think that's how it works. But so again, as a non-expert, I look at this and I say, how is it possible that that there can be well-trained, knowledgeable individuals who can who can at least formally adhere to these two things simultaneously? I, I, I search me quite honestly. I suppose most people go for one criticism or the other, and lots of people think that. Uh, uh, Kant's failing is the principles are far too abstract, so it's formalism that is the problem. But then some people will turn around and say, oh, but Kant was an old Prussian with some rather rigid views, so the problem is rigorism. I'm, I can't do better than that. I just think it's bizarre that um, having got these two sort of classical criticisms which are reiterated and reiterated, it isn't more often said, well, one or the other, but you can't have both... Uh, uh, criticisms, hmm. but uh, there it is. So y you mentioned um, your undergraduate experience with Philippa Foote and mm. being exposed to Kant and uh, his groundwork um, in, in your undergraduate. Because well, she taught me ethics, Anscombe wasn't so keen on ethics. Right. If it had been Aquinas, she probably would have taught it herself. <laughs> but. Um, what surprises me when I when I read this account, or rather, what surprised me when I read this account, um, is that it seems like a very smooth and obvious transition. Well, here is this graduate student who becomes disenchanted with rational choice, is looking for an overarching framework, examines some neo-Kantians, thinks, well, I'm not sure about that, then says, oh yes, well, I have had some experience with Kant, I'm going to go back to Kant and read read Kant and see what Kant has to say. Um, so th at some level, that all seems reasonable to me. On the other hand, um, I've had a little bit of experience reading Kant, uh, very little. It's really not easy. Um, and in fact, uh, a memorable moment for me was when I was an undergraduate, and um, this was actually not in a class of Kant, this was Hegel, but which, who at least for me was even worse. But <laughs> but but more or less the same sort of uh, difficulty in terms of impenetrability. And I remember two German exchange students, this was in, in Canada at the time, uh, who were speaking to one another. Perhaps there was an English speaker there as well because they were speaking in English. And one of them turned to the other and said, well, thank goodness I finally had the chance to study this work in translation because otherwise I, I, I never understood it when I read it in German. And, I, and then, then I thought, you know, that's it for me. I have to get out of this whole business because uh, if the Germans can't understand a German speaker, then I'm lost. So uh, this is all a long prefatory comment to say that um, this is difficult stuff. It must, have been, it must have been very difficult and arduous and, 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 uh, and non-trivial for you to be grappling with this uh, as, as, a, as a young graduate student, particularly when you were doing something which was somewhat unfashionable. Well, I suppose I, I, that's why I uh, came reluctantly back to Kant, in that I had not found reading the groundwork easy. 
Um, many of Kant's texts were not available or not available in good translations. My German's good, but it's not perfect. And um, the German texts were not all of them then available in good editions. So one simple thing that's happened if you read Kant is there are much, much better editions and also the new Cambridge translations, of which the first was published only in 96, are a great improvement for the English speakers. However, it's still the case that a lot of Germans find it quite useful to read Kant in English. <laughs> it still is. Well, uh, yes, uh, it's curious. I suppose a translator has to think hard about how to do it, and although I wouldn't say every translation's very good, there are some rather good ones. Hmm. And the, what's very interesting is there are a lot of um, essentially bilingual people working on Kant, and they tend to be uh, Germans who, for reasons that don't necessarily have to do with their love of Kant, ended up in English-speaking universities. Hmm. And I, I have uh, numbers of former pupils who are German. Do you have, do you we have, tend to publish on count in English. Does it, does it make it harder to understand when you have a whole string of verbs that come at the end, when you have five yeah, or six you, verbs you, that you just go... You sort of get used to that, but, <laughs> but it does make it harder, yes. I'm, and, and Kant writes, of course, an old-fashioned German, um, and uh, the standard edition when I was a graduate student was still in fracture, Gothic print. It wasn't simple to read. Hmm. Um, but now, uh, you know, the German editions are good, and some very elementary things they've done. Um, it was always the case that the Prussian Academy edition of um, the early 20th century was the standard and has numbered pages, and uh, that makes it easier. Um, and these are now included in all editions and translations. So it's like editions of Plato or Aristotle, where right. you get the numbers in the margin, so you know where you are, and you, if you really get stuck, you zoom off to another translation. But I'm not, you know, uh, terribly hooked on the scholarly life, so... So there, there are three, before we leave the philosophical aspect, um, again, as I mentioned to you, mm. um, the assumption of that, that has to be made is that uh, the people who are watching this are not all of a philosophical background. Um, there, are, there are three aspects of um, Kantian philosophy, or at least the aspect of Kantian philosophy which seems to have influenced you, that I, I, I'd like to um, have you expound upon a little bit. The first is obviously the categorical imperative and its, and its um, relevance to universality, universalism. And, and I thought that um, I have one or two questions about that, but I thought perhaps I should just have you define well, that and, and talk about it. Well, let's start there. Um, um, the detour I took before I uh, started reading Kant seriously, uh, when I'm in my, I suppose, my second or third year at heart as a graduate student, was a detour to uh, look at people who were trying to use certain formal constraints on top of utilitarianism, although their utilitarianism was muted and masked. Um, and it was the formalism that attracted me. Um, I suppose the, the 
fundamental intuition is if you can get places with uh, minimal assumptions, that's much more valuable than getting places on the back of extravagant assumptions. And that parsimony of, in premises is uh, what I thought um, I was going to find in looking at these some of these 20th century writers. They're not people who many people now read, people like Marcus Singer and Kurt Beyer uh, and some others. Uh, and uh, Kant is different. And I suppose that what is interesting about the categorical imperative is that it combines two aspects of what is loosely called universalism. One is the idea that um, principles have the form of law. They cover all cases in a certain domain. Uh, so, you know, whether it is thou shalt not bear false witness or whether it is uh, remember to renew your subscription at the end of the month, uh, it is uh, universal in form. It's addressed to anybody. But what is interesting about the categorical imperative is that Kant is also asking whether it is universal in scope. And that's a different matter, mm. because universal in scope means this has to be a principle that could be a principle for Anybody and everybody. So renew your subscription at the um, uh, beginning of the month does not have uh, universal scope. I mean, if it's my magazine subscription or my library subscription, it will only apply to people whose subscription falls due this month, etc. Um, whereas Kant is asking, well, uh, what principles could be principles for everybody? Now, one might think, well, if they're universal in form, they're going to be principles for everybody. But that, that would be incorrect, because certain principles, if they were adopted if by some, let alone by many, would actually destroy the capacity of some others to act on them. So a principle of coercion is the simple example, that if I adopt a principle of coercing people, then... Um, I'm, uh, my, the coercion I inflict will prevent some others from adopting a principle of coercion. Still more, a principle of violence. Also, though the argument's a little more subtle, a principle of deceiving others. So these very basic ethical principles are distinctive in that they're ones that everybody can adopt. But of course, the argument's working um, to show the converse. It's working to show these ones can't be principles for everybody. And Kant's conclusion is those ones you reject. Right. So he isn't saying never coerce. He's saying don't make coercion your basic principle. Don't make deception your basic principle. Don't make violence your basic principle. And that means that one would have to have some specific um, uh, reason for saying in this occasion uh, coercion would be permitted, for example, uh, uh, to protect the innocent, or whatever it might be. So th that's the, the general idea. I think that Kant is putting forward both a formal criterion and a scope criterion. And he's saying principles that uh, do not meet both are not fit to be universal laws and should be rejected. So in, in your writings, you talk about 
different versions of the categorical imperative. Yeah. The, um, the version I'm familiar with and the one that mm -hmm. uh, perhaps most people are familiar with is I think what you call the universal law version, but uh, maybe mm -hmm. I've got the words wrong, but uh, at any That's rate, right. it's, yeah. it's, it's this sense that one should act only in accordance with uh, a maxim uh, that through which can... you can at the same time will a universal law right will that it be a universal law that's it so that's that's that was my sense of what the yeah. categorical imperative is um, and one sees universalism mm. obviously mm. one has a sense of a concordance with the the views that you were raising before um, but pres presumably there are other ways of 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 phrasing the categorical imperative, um, and how do they differ, and how do they influence subsequent um, The one that's work? become most popular is the, what's called the formula of the end in itself, or, uh, uh, which treat others as uh, never as mere means, but always at the same time as ends, treat person. And that's become part of popular culture, although I think it's probably given a wide variety of interpretations when you consider it. Um, I don't think I've uh, got the horsepower to give you the, the, uh, an argument that takes you neatly from universal law to end in itself. Uh, I think it, it is relatively easy to show that they are the same principle in different formats and that they draw the same... Uh, dividing lines between different categories of duty. The one that is really puzzling to people, however, is the so-called formula of autonomy. Because to us, the very idea that autonomy is the same as the categorical imperative just looks incoherent. Mm. They are completely uh, different, it seems. Uh, I think this is because in the late 20th century, uh, we, a new conception of autonomy became extremely popular, where autonomy is taken to be individual freedom or um, self-determination, me, myself, choosing, making choices, etc. Um, and nothing against that, except it wasn't what Kant was talking about when he used the word autonomy. Uh, in that, as far as I can make out, he never, and this is not my discovery, it's a, a man called Thomas Hill, who was a contemporary of mine at Harvard and works at Chapel Hill, and um, Kant never predicates autonomy of persons. He never talks about an autonomous person. He talks about an autonomous principle. Now, if you just have to look at the etymology, autonomous is the nomos, it is a law, it, it is a law, but it is not a conditional law. That would be Kant's word, heteronymous. Mm. So the idea that it is a law and for, uh, 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 has the form of law and furthermore can be a principle for everyone is there in this jurisprudential conception of autonomy. And when we look back, we realize that the term autonomy uh, before Kant is always used as a jurisprudential term since antiquity. And for the Greeks, an autonomous city was a city that made its own laws, wasn't unlike a colony subject to a mother city that made the laws for it. The colony was heteronymous and uh, the, the independent city was autonomous because of its laws being made. Uh, but, uh, and that's just uh, that jurisprudential use is still 
standard in the 19th century. For example, I was reading a book about John Stuart Mill, um, which said that Mill, for whom rationality and autonomy are the two key notions. I thought, I wonder how often Mill uses the term autonomy. So I Googled away, and the answer is he uses it once in his work on representative government in the jurisprudential sense. <laughs> what Mill talked about was individuality, not autonomy. Right. Which I find fascinating, but it could be so widely assumed that because Mill was so keen on freedom of speech and rights of self-expression, that therefore he must have been keen on autonomy in the late 20th century sense. But he wasn't. Um, a, a couple of follow-up questions from what you're saying. Mm. My understanding is, um, as you phrased, that, that when Kant talks about the autonomy of reason, He's not talking about the autonomy of the reasoner. He's talking about the autonomy of this process of reason. And this is also linked to another issue with respect to the categorical imperative, which is the fact that the categorical imperative is a supreme principle. It's not mm. just one particular mm -hmm. principle of many, but it has some mm. supreme role to play it is, if in you practical like, the reason. criterion for the others. Right. So, so it, is, it is a preeminent principle, and the preeminent notion of this principle, as I understand it, yeah. is that, um, that it implies um, a form of communication or political involvement or individuals being able to converse and associate, uh, uh, be able to be engaged in discourse and free discourse with one another because they are invoking or potentially invoking principles that could be used for everyone. It's, it is this sense of, 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 uh, of, of political engagement, if you will. Maybe I'm, perhaps I'm not expressing that correctly, but there's a question that I have in here that I'm eventually going to get to. But first, I want to know if I'm completely off track. You're not completely off track, but you, you were at the beginning of it, I think, a bit off track. Okay, but, um, so correct my, me. The reason I would think that is that um, the um, Kantian, but rather different, political theories that we find in John Rawls and Jürgen Habermas uh, do take it uh, that uh, justification is ultimately political. You've got a plurality of people. They engage with one another. It's political discourse or as Rawls would have it, uh, it is uh, the discourse of fellow citizens within a bounded liberal democratic society. Uh, so they are thinking of politics in quite a, a um, specific sense. What Kant is thinking is political perhaps in a more abstract sense in that he thinks they have the, the key is to realize that there's a plurality of agents. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, what would this universality be for? It's got to be able to reach um, not, not just those of a particular um, sentiment or a particular outlook, but any, just anybody. And uh, so that Kant's conception of politics is indeed a very different conception of the justification of reason and the one we say find in Descartes. Descartes used this marvelous phrase, reason is complete and entire in each one of us. Reason is a sort of uh, wonderful inner light 
tells you what to, to think, what to do, it gives you a, a touchstone of truth and all that. Um, Kant thinks of reason in a much more, or reasoning, in a much more transactional way. I give the other a reason, the other person accepts or rejects the reason and gives me a reason. So the, from that you can get to the thought, well, whatever we're giving has to be accessible to both of us. It has to be followable to both parties, or if you're talking about a, a lot of people, all parties. Right. Uh, and it is that idea that a principle has to be followable in thought, if it's a theoretical idea, or followable, adoptable for action, if it's a practical principle, is what I think Kant is saying. So it's much more reticent than the more full-blooded political metaphors suggest. But it certainly involves agents communicating with each other or potentially communicating potentially with each is other. is the key to this. Uh, it involves the possibility that A communicates to B, B to C, and so on. That possibility, if you lose that, you're not offering reasons. If what I offer you is something that you could not possibly follow in thought or could not possibly adopt for action, I haven't given you a reason. And I think it's as elementary as that. And that's why we're not talking about, uh, you know, fellow citizens or uh, people who are linked by actual discourse. So to put it sh in brief, I think Rawls and Habermas and a number of other of our contemporaries who have thought about conceptions of public reason uh, think of this as uh, modelled on democracy in a way. It is actual discourse between a variety of people. Kant is more uh, reticent. He thinks it's uh, not destroying the possibility of discourse link linking a number of agents. Right, and it's not as if one has to necessarily come to any sort of agreement within these agents, but it's, it's the potential of meaningful communication. It's, it's the potential of communication. I, in fact, a simple way I think of thinking about Kant is that he suggests that we should not uh, undermine the possibility of communication. And that means sticking to principles which we can expect the other party to be able to follow in thought, or if it's a practical principle, adopt for action. And as you say, this, this can be contrasted quite sharply with this notion of individual Cartesian light of, of reason, the notion that uh, that reason necessarily involves the potential of being able to communicate yeah. ideas with, with other agents. Yeah. But the other, before I get into the applied mm -hmm. aspect uh, of things and, and your, much of your work there, I wanted to highlight one other theme which is so evident throughout so much of your work, and that is this notion of duties and the importance uh, of duties as being preeminent or at least logically antecedent to rights. Um, so before I ask you something, perhaps I can get you to embellish a little bit on yes, that. Yes, I don't imagine that anybody writing on ethics or politics in Europe until the 20th century would have thought it could be otherwise um, because duties were always taken as fundamental. Um, and uh, although we have, of course, uh, claims about rights, not merely um, from the 18th century, but also before that, uh, those rights are 
underpinned by others having certain duties. And indeed, I think that's what Simone Weil, whom I quote from time to time, was saying when she says the notion of obligation comes before that of rights. And I think that's correct. And of course, it casts a very difficult light on uh, the public ethical discourse of our day, because uh, people take it that human rights are fundamental. Uh, now, that's, uh, and I see why we ended up there, and it, it has a lot to do uh, with this post-positivist attempt to rescue a bit of ethics, and um, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948 is the bit that was first rescued, admittedly, not by argument, by declaration, by positing. It was, if you like, it was uh, legal positivism in place of logical positivism. Uh, but it, it, it has become, interestingly, really influential, but not in its first 30 years. In the first 30 years, the Universal Declaration was taken by many people to uh, tell us something about, um, not about all the rights that are in the Declaration, but specifically the right to self-determination. If you think about it, that was the era of decolonization. And the right to self-determination, and of course there had been an equivalent point in the uh, post-World War I peace process, the right to self-determination preoccupied lots and lots of people. Um, it didn't really occur to them that the new states would uh, have to observe the various other rights. And some did, some didn't, lots didn't. Uh, and the reason why I think you have to think about the counterpart duties is that if you don't know who ought to do what for whom, it's not clear to me what anybody's rights amount to. Yes. And uh, that is a, uh, a situation in which one would not want to end up. But many have ended up. Rather fascinatingly, uh, one saw in the wake of these mid-century catastrophes norms of justice going off in a narrower direction framed by human rights considerations and people in other fields saying, oh, well, we do need virtues and inventing something they call virtue ethics to um, fill the place. Whereas, of course, traditionally, whether you're talking Aquinas or Kant or Mill, You've got perfect duties, some of them with counterpart rights, and imperfect duties without counterpart rights. So I'm greedy. I think we should have it all. One of the things that your average person on the street is frustrated by um, is this idea that, well, these fine words are all well and good, but how are we going to ensure that rights are actually protected, who is going to be responsible for, uh, for enforcing them, who is going to be responsible for overseeing the ones who are supposed to be enforcing them, who is going to be doing what exactly. Um, this strikes me as little more, without sounding too agreeable or perhaps too easily influenced, little more than common sense. And in fact, in, in one of your recent articles, The Dark Side of Human Rights, you talk about Edmund Burke 
raising this very point that these these fine words are all well and good, but when somebody is uh, is is starving or when they're ill, they need the the mm. farmer and the physician. They don't, and, and we need to make sure that the farmer and the physician are involved in some coherent way. Saying um, splendid phrases is not actually going to assist the situation. So, and I'm sure uh, similar sentiments were voiced long before Edmund Burke voiced his. Um, so I guess my confusion again is, well, isn't this, isn't this obvious? I mean, isn't it clear that in order to have an effective, uh, an effective uh, real world oversight of human rights and abuses and make sure that we minimize um, uh, that we live up to our standards, be it on a local scale, a regional scale, a national scale, or an international scale, we have to delineate very clearly who should be doing what. And so how is this even controversial? I mean, this shouldn't have anything to do with Kant or anything. This should just be, well, yes, of course, we have to do this. Well, that's more or less what happened uh, after the uh, promulgation of the Declaration. A lot of people said, well, these are just manifesto rights. And the Declaration is in some ways quite uh, poorly drafted because it seems to be in a state of confusion about whether the, um, uh, the duties, which it doesn't thematize explicitly, lie with countries, peoples, nations, or states. Um, the United Nations pursued the problem, which was clearly a rather serious problem, a hole below the waterline, if you ask me, in the 1966 Covenants, uh, Covenant on um, Civil and Political Rights and the Covenant on um, uh, Social, Economic, and Cultural Rights, if I got that right. Anyhow, the two covenants uh, took a stand, which I think I, I described in that paper, where they said, okay, it's not quite obvious where the duties lie, but the duties to make it obvious where the duties lie, lie with the states. That's what they said. So the states party are held in ratifying uh, these the covenants to commit themselves to making it be the case that the duties are realized and they are allocated appropriately, the institutions are constructed. The frustration comes at this point um, that a lot of the state's party have done rather poorly at doing this, uh, some of them catastrophically poorly. So we have the phenomenon of rogue states who don't want to, all this stuff or want it very selectively, uh, of um, uh, failed states which don't have the capacity to get things together uh, to enforce it. Uh, and of course you may have states that are both rogue and failed. I won't name names. But there definitely is a difference between rogue and failed. But I also think we now have a third problem which is that globalization has actually reduced the powers of uh, even the well-intentioned states for whom it is now very much harder uh, to uh, 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 really secure the realization of these rights. Uh, I suppose that people would say a good example is the legislation on money laundering. Uh, whose legislation should we think about? Well, it could be the US or it could be a European country. Uh, but 
uh, one hears people say that the net result is it makes it more or less impossible for uh, businesses in those jurisdictions to do business in certain parts of the world where the bribe is a normal courtesy, let's say. So I think uh, we, there's a lot that we need to think about. And if you look at some of the most recent books on uh, human rights, you have those who feel, well, it's all going along on the right track. For example, uh, Gordon Brown's book, um, who headed a commission for, I suppose it was Kofi Annan when he started, but maybe it was Ban Ki-moon. Uh, and then... Uh, with Jeremy Waldron as the philosopher by his side, um, who had a committee which met a few times. And on the other hand, Eric Posner, who is the son or nephew of a former US Supreme Court judge, mm. uh, who is very skeptical about where we've reached with human rights. So you've got a very broad spectrum of critical views now. And um, I think, the, to me, the simple question is whether we can load all the duties onto states or whether that becomes self-defeating at a certain point. And your time at the Equality and Human Rights Commission um, influenced you in what way in terms of, um, let me rephrase that, did, did your time uh, as, at the chair, as the chair of the mm. Equality and Human Rights Commission make you um, more optimistic or less optimistic in terms of the state's ability to be able to, first of all, circumscribe duties for itself, and second of all, implement those duties? Um, I would be pretty optimistic with a state like the UK, despite the constant um, uh, accusations from some NGOs it's actually a very human rights compliant state. Um, and uh, you know, there may be disagreements about bits here and there, uh, but if you want an example of a compliant state, make your way to Northwestern Europe. Uh, if you want an example of a non-compliant state, there are a lot of places you can go. Um, so uh, when people want to um, say how disgraceful UK performance is, they will generally point to Norway, who's performance is exemplary um, and uh, but you know there will be NGOs and the like in Norway who are very critical of sure. some aspects of what they do and there will of course be I'm sure you've looked at Human Rights Watch US on occasion they are very critical of what uh, it goes on there or rather doesn't go on and particularly of course about the death penalty and various yeah. other things. Well, what, ironically, one of the aspects of living in a society with a free and vigorous press is that the, um, the countries which tend to be better performing in terms of human rights might be subject to more levels it, of it, internal it, dissent. It's, a, it's actually quite a difficult problem, this, because we have uh, uh, these uh, national human rights institutions of which are uh, Equality and Human Rights Commission is one in its human rights capacity. And you're quite right, the NHRI is in uh, highly human rights respecting states tend to get a dramatically harder ride than those in less human rights respecting states. Yeah. You could sort of see the politics of it, but I'm not sure that at a deep level it's a 
a good idea to be pushing it this way. And telling people they're very bad at something doesn't make them keen to concentrate on it. Right. So when, when I asked you uh, about your experiences at the mm. Equality and Human Rights Commission, um, I, I didn't in any way mean to mm. imply that there were any comparisons uh, with other less enlightened countries or anything like that. I, I guess what I really want to know is, mm-hmm. have you seen positive changes, best practices, lessons learned um, oh, I think within, a, within a UK context, of course, that's what I mean. I think on a small scale all the time, but uh, it is incremental. It is incremental because basically you start out um, uh, with a country that has the rule of law, which doesn't mean every legal process or every police process is perfect, but there is the rule of law. Uh, The places where things are really going awry are a million miles from anything you could call the rule of law. Of course. And uh, yeah, that's that's really serious. And uh, I don't think we, uh, it's helpful to have these lurid accusations made of uh, UK politicians or institutions uh, without setting a context to it. And uh, yes, there is corruption, but uh, before you talk about it, you need to go and see serious corruption. And and indeed, I suspect that to some extent it's unhelpful insofar as it might overshadow many of the illuminating and positive and important lessons that that Western countries might be able to provide. It does not make people enthusiastic about human rights to be telling them all the time it's something they're really, really bad at. (laughs) (laughs) It's the sort of thing that makes children give up subjects at school. (laughs) If you tell you're really, really bad at French, your solution is, why don't I drop French? I'd, I'd like to move a little bit uh, mm. now to the to your work in the Nuffield mm-hmm. Council and bioethics. And my understanding... Which, which you perhaps know is a long while back. Yes. Because I only did that for two years because then I started chairing the foundation. So it would have been a conflict of interest as I was chairing one of the key funder. Yes. Well, I, I suppose what, I, what I'm really most interested in is exploring... Um, the notion of autonomy and the role of autonomy that later morphed into, as I understand it, the Gifford Lectures and your work on trust and so forth that perhaps had come okay. through those experiences. Uh, perhaps I'm no, that, misrepresenting that's right things. No, I, I, I did bits of work in bioethics from time to time, of which I suppose the most substantial is that book, Autonomy and Trust in Bioethics, uh, which was opportunistic. I was talking with my friend Stuart Sutherland, who was then principal of Edinburgh, and he said, um, wouldn't you give the Gifford lectures? And I said, oh, Stuart, I'm not sure what on. And by the time we'd had the conversation, I was committed to what uh, um, I'd said. I do think it's peculiar that we spend so much time talking about autonomy and so little talking about trust. And then we decided to narrow it down, and the bioethics was a useful frame. And I wrote another book called, um, with Neil Manson called Rethinking Informed Consent in Bioethics, which takes forward many of those themes. So uh, I, I suppose what I'm most interested in is exploring 
the impact of that within broader society, within the bioethics community, in terms of reformulating perhaps this notion of autonomy, extending it? Uh, I'm not sure it has been at all influential. People are deeply in love with the idea that informed consent can do all the work. And I'm deeply skeptical of it. And I have uh, really uh, put quite a lot of energy into suggesting that informed consent is limited, partly because there's, there's a limit to how much information most of us can absorb about any one topic. Uh, so um, I think if, I'm going to say something rather cynical. As you've noticed, I don't say many cynical things. I've been waiting. I've been why is, informed, for a long why time. is informed consent so popular? Answer, it is very convenient for in commercial life uh, to uh, claim to have the consent of the customer before you do certain things. How do you know you have the consent of the, the customer? Well, it's called click and tick. Now, click and tick, for example, you download new software down in a jiffy. Um, and uh, there are terms and conditions. It's called an end user license agreement. Do you read it? No, you're sensible like everybody else, you don't read it. And nobody reads this stuff, they just consent to it. But this is nonsense. How can you consent to something which uh, you found too boring to read and if you had read it might have been incomprehensible? So. What we've got is a whole swathe of life where bogus consent rules okay because it's very convenient. Now, bioethics is partly interesting because both in um, clinical practice and in medical research, they actually take standards of consent much more seriously. But they've come up against the limit in other ways that if um, the doctor says, um, I'm going to give you an injection, that all right? And I say yes. That's a very clear informed consent transaction. By the way, it doesn't even have to be recorded. Um, mm. But uh, if it's very complicated, you begin to hit the limits. And years ago, I used to chair a little committee at Addenbrooke's in Cambridge. Uh, it was the Tissue Bank Management Committee, a very small committee, but we... Um, one of my colleagues wrote a most uh, impressive consent procedure for a rather complex set of conditions. But it was so complex and so serious that you could um, have a preliminary conversation with the patient, uh, but then it was non-urgent. So you sent them away with a lot of literature, and then they came back and saw a nurse counselor, and then they saw the surgeon again, and then the consent took place and it was witnessed by two, two people. I have to say, that's lovely where you can do it, but most medical practice is just not like that, and you can't make it like that. The conditions are too complex, not every patient can follow it, um, the uh, time is not available, it's too urgent, and a huge proportion of the uh, patient numbers are uh, frail or infant. And can't consent anyhow. So, you know, we should get real about informed consent in clinical ethics and, by the way, in research ethics. And, and, and that's why I would think the Kantian thing is more valuable. 
ask yourself, am I coercing the patient? Am I manipulating the patient? Am I deceiving the patient? If you're doing any of those, it's wrong. But the idea, I got patient consent, is likely to be um, an illusion. And it has also been pointed out that this notion of, related but somewhat different, this notion of autonomy is also not held in as high regard by the patients themselves very often as people often ascribe. Um, and for perhaps this, this, the very click and tick reasons that you yeah. were alluding to earlier. Patients are very clever and they will ask a question like uh, doctors trying to make them make the decision and they say, doctor, if it was your daughter, uh, what would you suggest? <laughs> or if it was yourself, what would you do? Well, fair enough, I have to say. Patients are fairly clever, but uh, they can't be expected to uh, make a consent to very complicated things. Yeah. And by the way, there's huge amounts of evidence that people uh, treat consent in many things on a tick-and-click basis. I was once lecturing to accountants, and they were very stodgy. So I asked them how many have had travel insurance in the last year. Well, um, <laughs> two hands went up, two nerdy hands, and <laughs> uh, that had read the whole of the terms and conditions. But do you read all the TNCs? Do any of you read all the TNCs? I think life would be too short to read them all. Absolutely. And actually what's protecting us, at least in the UK, is the consumer protection legislation, not the T's and C's. The knowledge that, that should you have been found to have to Was it to have been unreasonable or or if you were coerced or so on? Like that. No. So, um, and I, th I think it's very peculiar that we talk about informed consent as though there were brilliant compliance with it by, oh, the Googles and the Apples of this world where actually that's the place where it's totally disrespected. Hmm. Um, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you. I just have a few, few more okay. questions, if I may. Um, I'd like to move a little bit uh, to, again, work that came out some time ago, the Wreath Lectures on Trust, mm -hmm. which you had. And uh, again, one can certainly see a pattern of the importance of having a universalistic perspective in order to be able to make progress. And so you have these broad themes of, um, of trust requiring agents being able to communicate with one another, uh, as opposed to just looking at things from the perspective of private autonomy or private choice or private individuals and so forth. Um, one of the themes, there are many themes that you touched upon in, your, um, in the Reef Lectures, but one of them was this culture of um, accountability and transparency uh, that seemed to at the time have been completely out of control and touched upon many sectors of society with ironically adverse deleterious effects. That's what's so uh, amazing and sad, isn't it? And, and so I think many people agreed wholeheartedly with you when you, when you enunciated this. This was 15 years ago, mm -hmm. thereabouts. Um, so I'd like your assessment on a couple of things. First of all, have things gotten better or gotten worse or stayed roughly the same? What sort of um, impact, not so much have your writings had, but other people who have commented on, uh, uh, 
to a similar extent on, on, on this. Has the pendulum begun to swing back or, or is it still way over here? Good question. Um, uh, I have to say for 10 of the, it's 14 years since I did the wreath lectures, and I've written a lot on trust, talked to, I suspect hundreds of audiences about it, but I also did, which gets you a bigger audience faster, a TED talk on trustworthiness before trust. And I would say that in the last two years, I've noticed more people saying trustworthiness is what is important rather than trust. Because as I see it, trust is what the other fellow has to give. But what I have to do is be trustworthy. So it's looking at the duties first rather than the response. Um, and uh, it's hard to tell uh, because it, uh, I'm afraid you will still find endless businesses who can say, what can we do to be trusted? To which the simple answer is, well, you might start by being trustworthy and giving other people evidence that you are trustworthy. Bing, bing. I'm simplistic about this. But it's the wrong place to start to ask, what can we do to be trusted? How can we make, how can we restore trust is the favorite question still. So that's bad news in my view, because it's a simplistic question and you can't just restore trust. Um, but I suppose that I feel that there is a more informed and skeptical view, not necessarily yet fruitfully so, about um, the regulation, accountability, transparency. Especially people, of course, always resent regulation. Um, and they'll now even say that some forms of accountability are counterproductive. I, I have to tell you a nice story because I, I really love this one. I was chairing a very small inquiry into the safety of maternity services in England. We took lots of evidence. And one of the midwives said, well, you see, the trouble is it takes longer to do the paperwork than to deliver the baby. Yeah, that says it all, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, but I... I'm afraid it, there, is there are dysfunctional forms of accountability all over the place. You only have to name our neck of the woods, um, the academic world, look at the uh, league tables, look at the Shanghai Tong, look at the Times Higher League table, uh, look at the rankings, look at uh, the way in which we prodigally create uh, uh, performance indicators which then become perverse, perverse incentives. It goes on and on and on. However, not to finish on an entirely pessimistic note, um, one of the things I do at the moment is I'm on the Banking Standards Board and we're trying to look at the culture of banks, not, we're not regulators, we are owned by our members who are banks. And uh, what we do is to um, hold up a mirror to how they're doing, a mirror whose reflection only they can see, but they can have an objective mirror which might tell you something about how they're doing. And I think there's some very interesting examples of better and worse cultures in a sector that is every bit as diverse as any other sector. And there's, there's a genuine I was going to say motivation, but I'm going to strike that word from my vocabulary henceforth. I'm sorry, is there a... I use it too, but sparingly. 
there's a there's a genuine inclination, an honest uh, attempt to try to understand and appreciate and reform the banking culture from within by these members? In some cases. Um, that is to say, there are some um, institutions that have thought long, hard, and genuinely about what is our internal culture. Do we even have an internal culture? Do we perhaps have a very fragmented set of different cultures? Um, there are other institutions that have confused having a culture with getting a PR take on it. Uh, institutions, and I think you find the same, by the way, in any set of businesses. Sure. But have you seen um, Gillian Tett's book um, about a year ago called The Silo Effect? No, I haven't. And she, she writes, she is a financial journalist, but she's also, uh, she's, I think, the head of uh, the FT in the US, but she also writes on, um, she's a social anthropologist by training, and she writes very illuminatingly on uh, cultures that are, have disconnects in them. I think we have a lot of them. And I think that our attempts at regulation have often made this worse. Transparency, I have only one thing against transparency, it's too weak. Um, people imagine that being transparent will be the solution to lots of problems. I think it's the solution to one sort of problem. It's a solution when your problem is that you have uh, misplaced secrecy. It's really good at dealing with misplaced secrecy, but it isn't good at dealing with lots of other problems. Among other things, what is put transparently into the public domain is often seen by few or by the wrong people or by nobody and uh, perhaps not understood by people. So uh, again, I come back to you know, the possibility of communication is rather what counts in this. Uh, we did some work at the Royal Society on um, science as an open enterprise. Let me finish with something on science because, um, and uh, after a lot of thought about transparency and openness, we came out in favor of what we called intelligent openness, uh, where you had uh, it, you didn't succeed in intelligent openness unless what you did was accessible to the relevant audiences, intelligible to the relevant audiences, and accessible by the relevant audiences. I grant you that's horrible as a slogan, but this was just a Royal Society report. But um, I think that that uh, transparency is without that those moves is a bit flabby. One last question, if I may. Mm. Um, somewhat different, which is, it's relatively clear to me, at least in some instances, how many aspects of your extensive work in public policy has been informed by your philosophy, your philosophical leanings, your philosophical training, and your philosophical experiences. I wonder if the arrow of causality has gone in the other direction at times. I wonder if your experiences in public policy have helped in some ways to illuminate and inform aspects of your philosophical thinking. Oh yes, I'm, I will give you a couple of examples. Um, one is realism about implementing policies. Um, 
a great deal of um, public and journalistic discussion of policy is uh, completely up in the air about whether it's feasible or not. Uh, and you will see this all the way from people saying, oh, well, uh, we should spend more money uh, without thinking it through to people uh, uh, who are um, saying they should prevent this, they should prevent that, without thinking how you do it. And uh, I do find, quite often find it useful uh, to uh, take some of these very concrete things and um, uh, remember when you're doing philosophy that a bit of um, realism about whether the action that is thought to be a matter of duty or a claim of right is even feasible. And uh, I think I perhaps would not have um, been so keen on that if I had only worked in the academic world, because it's easier to think if I get the principles right, that's what counts. Right, everything Whereas else actual, will follow. No, and it doesn't, <laughs> as you know. No, it does not follow, and getting the principles right is necessary but not sufficient. Getting the implementation right is the hard stuff. Are more individuals of philosophical background and training and persuasion um, taking roles such as you've done in, in the public sector, in public policy? Very often one hears Honora O'Neill is this, is this uh, mm -hmm. eliminating exception because she's able to combine rigorous scholarship with um, with extensive public policy in a way that, that is clearly informed by her ideas and her scholarship and her philosophy, not just somebody who happens to be expert in this domain and has the ability in another domain, but is able to make substantive links between the two. I'm wondering if one significant impact that you're having is to inspire other people to move in a similar direction. It, there are a lot of people with some philosophical training who end up in public life. I mean, that is one of the consequences of that degree I mentioned, PPE, that it has um, uh, formed, oh, everybody from David Cameron to Boris Johnson. That's a wide swath. <laughs> <laughs> and many others too. Uh, so uh, it, it's, it's not that people don't go into public life, but I do think the domination of uh, models of rational choice and the economics that goes with, with it of our business and political class is an issue there. Of people who come in, as it were, while um, retaining both feet in the academic world, I think there are actually quite a lot. I'll name one whom, of whom you may have heard, who was, my, she was one of my teachers, Mary Warnock. Uh, who uh, was responsible for the Warnock Report um, on, uh, uh, and then the legislation that became the Human Embryology and Fertilization Act, which by any count is one of the best pieces of legislation in this field, has been twice amended to pick up scientific changes. But I think there are a lot of other philosophers I could name, or uh, sort of philosopher lawyers, who have um, their finger in some pies. Uh, so, um, uh, for example, uh, John Dupre at Exeter, I think, is uh, writes a lot on human enhancement. There are people who write a lot on um, uh, 
I've never quite worked this out. Joe Wolfe seems to have got himself a corner in gambling, by which I mean on gambling policy. <laughs> um, so there are a lot of people who, who uh, do take, uh, engage quite seriously with bits here and there. Um, I think there are some people who feel it's just too too awfully tedious being on these committees with people who don't know any philosophy. And I'm afraid you have to do that. And actually, I find I learn stuff all the time from people who are not philosophers. Um, but I suspect what I said previously, that, that sort of real, realism being a bit hard-nosed about what can and what cannot be done is what I've ultimately learned. And I probably learned that before I did philosophy. And uh, so... I'll finish with a, a silly story, but I was crossing a road in London years ago. There was an old lady, probably younger than I am now, uh, beside me, and the cars were going past us. And she looked at them and she said to me, you'd need a swivel leg to get across here. They ought to do something about it. So in my family, they ought to, they ought to is <laughs> one of the phrases for an unrealistic take on <laughs> what needs doing. And I would say I think an awful lot of people are intimidated um, uh, by the thought that they will be thought to be uh, variously incompetent, politically incorrect, inappropriate, and so on. It's, uh, uh, it's a scolding culture now, isn't it? Mm. Is there anything you'd like to... And that we've no, no. I mean, I'm sure we could have another conversation where we wouldn't repeat a word, we'd take a different trajectory. <laughs> well, uh, I've had a wonderful time. Thank well, you very much. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Philosophy, Volume 2, along with separate discussions with Brian Epstein, Susan James... Hazana Sharp, and Susan Wolf. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.